Welcome to the Dumbbells and Dragons podcast. This is Kenny Rotter. Our guest this week is Christy Wheeler, a registered dietitian. I really enjoyed this conversation. It did take place in August of 2014. However, we don't really talk about any dated subjects, so I'm keeping it here instead of on a prequel episode. Christy and I spent some time talking about food and diets and organic versus GMO. We also discussed the healthiest way to eat eggs, so keep an ear out for that. Workout nerd out, everybody. Enjoy. In the basement, rolling dice. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Um, I know that we have just been speaking for about mm, 20 minutes, <laughs> and so I'm not going to lie, all of that would have probably been great for this, but now that's gone. So first, let me welcome Christy Wheeler. Still Wheeler? You didn't get yes. married? No. Last... Okay, no. All right. What do you do for a living? Just... Um, well, I'm a registered dietitian, and I work predominantly with kids with special needs, Um managing tube feed formulas, helping to kind of just use diet to manage whatever condition that they have to kind of improve their outcomes, prevent further decline in, in their diseases, and um, ultimately help to promote adequate growth and, and stuff that we need to look for in kids. Okay, so you're kind of like a saint. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but that's very nice. But I, I love what I do. It's, it's great to work for kids and um, whole families, really, because we just get this opportunity to help influence a whole family because um, a parent is going to do a lot more for their child than they'd even do for themselves. So it's just this great opportunity to be able to impact a lot more people um, versus just kind of meeting with adults. And kids are usually a lot more fun, so... I like it. <laughs> Kids are more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, how'd you get involved in? How'd you get started in that? What made you want to go into it? Um, actually, I didn't initially. Um, I did a rotation with in pediatrics at the clinic that I work for now while I was an intern, and I didn't think I'd be able to handle it. Just being able to see sick kids a lot and you know, the abuse and neglect that sometimes goes with that. Um, so initially, I, I didn't really want to, but um, they offered me a job. Um, even though I didn't have the pediatric experience because I did my rotation there. So um, I ended up, um, after trying to find other jobs, I ended up taking that one, um, and I love it. And I ended up actually leaving for a year to kind of do private practice and do, um, you know, pursue some other consulting things um, and ended up just recently coming back because I missed it. So Okay, excellent. Mm -hmm. You own your own business on the side, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm kind of determining what kind of focus I want to have, but um, I'm really interested in um, how nutrition impacts neurology. So I do a lot of ketogenic diet for epilepsy. So okay, what is that? Because I have <laughs> like I'm familiar with the term epilepsy, right? Not familiar with anything else you just said. Okay, so um, epilepsy in these kids are like the seizures that are basically ongoing for whatever reason. Sometimes they know why the seizures are being, you know, uh, continuing, but for whatever reason, medicine isn't working for them. So um, the ketogenic diet is another, um, basically a, a therapy that they can do. It's similar to Atkins. Have you heard of Atkins? I do. I'm familiar with Atkins. So it's similar in that it's very high fat, very low carbs. 
but it basically the classic version of the diet is much more extreme even than Atkins. So it's not really like nutritionally complete. Um, oh. We have to do a lot of supplementation and we monitor lab work and, and kind of have to make a lot of adjustments. But it basically changes the whole metabolism of the body to use fat for energy, which is ketones. So that's why it's called ketosis mm. or the ketogenic diet. And then um, basically instead of using sugar. So somehow that switch, um, there's kind of a lot of different theories for why it works, but they don't even, haven't really even pinpointed one mechanism for why it's effective. But some kids will become seizure free, come off all their meds, and then ultimately, um, even coming after um, coming off the diet, um, sometimes never having seizure again. So it's pretty miraculous in what a lot of people would describe it as. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. Like, I love to be able to involve, be involved in it. Yeah, just the mere fact that changing one aspect of your diet can reverse the disease Rever- processes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And now they're actually doing a lot of research with cancer because tumors themselves can't use ketones for energy, but the rest of your body can. So, you know, the the whole theory of starving cancer by eliminating sugar, um, if you've ever heard that, that's kind of a lot of like what a lot of fad diets, um, so to speak, for when people get diagnosed mm. with cancer. But essentially, this is a way to starve the cancer cells without actually starving the rest of the body. Um, because if you don't do it correctly, you can't just eliminate carbs. You have to then increase fat and make sure that there's appropriate balance, that you have enough protein and all of that. Um, otherwise, your body's not going to function properly. So um, so they're doing more research with that, particularly with, with brain tumors. Um, and there's been some good success on a preliminary basis with that. They're looking at it for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and autism. So they're actually, I think my theory is that in the next five years, we're probably going to see a lot more research on the ketogenic diet and how it can ultimately be used in a lot of different conditions. So you can put me down on the record for that one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And duly noted. So just in case all these things happen, you will get credit. Here you we will, go. <laughs> you will have called it. And then we will get a re- recording of you going, nailed it. Exactly. <laughs> That's really kind of cool. It's awesome. I'm fascinated by it. So, With the ketogenic diet mm-hmm. and low carbs, high fat, mm-hmm. like, do you subscribe to that diet? Do you think that other people without epilepsy or cancer should mm-hmm. be on that diet or where are you on that? Yeah, that's like, a great question because I should have said a really big disclaimer, which is it's not something that anybody should just decide they're going to do. If they get diagnosed with cancer or they have epilepsy, um, it's really, really, really important that they have the blessing of their neurologist um, or their epileptologist and that they're actually going to see a dietitian who's trained in the ketogenic diet. Um, just because there's lab work you have to monitor, there's certain eligibility criteria that you have to meet before you can do it. So it's really important to go to a team that actually knows how to manage it appropriately. So you'll find a lot more, a lot of resources online, but it's not really something people should really do themselves. It's important to have like the right um, professional team in place. Okay. Mm-hmm. And lightening up on that, like if someone at my job is like, oh, I'm going on Atkins. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, are you a supporter of 
that because I kind of refer mm-hmm. to it as a fad diet. It's right. not something I. Mm-hmm. I have my basic philosophy for nutrition is that no one thing works for everybody. There's no single one nutrition rule that's going to apply to everybody. There's exceptions to everything, and we see that in science in general. That no medic, no one high blood pressure medication will work for everybody. That's why you have like ten different ones, right? So there's all we we know that basically based on people's genetics is how they're going to respond to certain things. So I wouldn't necessarily say that Atkins is a bad diet for everybody. I also don't think it's necessarily a great one, um, but it all comes down to what their ultimate goals are. And, and really that's why I'm interested in nutrition and why I think it's important for people to, at some point in their lives, you know, kind of have like a nutrition checkup, you know, go see a dietitian, have them do a full assessment based on your medical history, your medications, your supplements, your goals. Because ultimately what we do is we put the puzzle pieces together and figure out what the best plan is for, for each person. And obviously, just like anything else, there's good dietitians and there's bad ones. And just like there's good doctors and there's bad doctors. But, you know, I think it's just important to kind of have somebody to put those pieces together for you to determine what the best, you know, nutrition plan is for you. Okay. So are you going to put together my diet plan Sure, after this? absolutely. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> just did one last night for a friend, actually. So... Um, <laughs> that's, that's how awesome. I spend my free time. That sounds like a great way to spend your free time. It's fun, though. I mean, I, I enjoy it. So, well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. What is involved in that? Well, I mean, it kind of comes down to a lot of different things. If I'm going to do a full nutrition assessment on somebody, that really can take sixty to ninety minutes because we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about. You know, when you were a kid, did you have any food allergies or intolerances or, you know, even whether you were breastfed or not is going to make a, a difference in terms of potential problems you may have now. Even so you're saying adult. I got to bring my mom. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I, I hate to get graphic, but even if a child's born vaginally or via C-section, that's going to impact their, their gut, you know, in terms of how they're going to be able to have that that immune system build up so this is a big moment for us because you're the first person on the podcast to say vaginally Um, in in reference to nutrition too (laughs) who knew those two went together right right? (laughs) (laughs) yep but they do that's actually amazing it just kind of made my day you're welcome but, but yeah, so basically going back to the nutrition (laughs) assessment sorry sidetrack um But basically, you know, I just ask a bunch of very intrusive questions, clearly, um, but that just helps me to kind of put together an ultimate plan in terms of of how people are doing and and what's important for them. Because somebody might come into my office and and want to, um, you know, see me to help them lose weight, but maybe really their issue is, is that they sleep really poorly and they're very anxious and they have other things that might indicate like a nutrition deficiency of some kind or... Or things even like with sleep, we're seeing a lot of research come out that says that if you're not sleeping well, then your hunger and satiety hormones are going to be totally thrown off. So, What's a, what's a satiety. satiety hormone? Yeah, so leptin and ghrelin are the two main hormones that regulate appetite. So leptin is what makes you feel um, full. They definitely sound like Lord of the Rings characters. <laughs> Well, and the funny thing is, is ghrelin, I, I always remember which one is which because ghrelin's the hunger gremlin. It's what makes you feel hungry. So that's how okay. I remember it. But so basically, if you're not sleeping adequately, um, you know, and a lot of people fall asleep with the TV on. 
um, or they're you know on their tablets in bed or you know looking at their phone flipping through Pinterest or Facebook or whatever well all of that electronics basically has this blue light frequency that disrupts your sleep pattern so it basically tricks your brain into thinking it's still daylight outside so it stops making melatonin melatonin is what makes you fall asleep so if you have a disruption in your sleep patterns, then ultimately you're not going to be able to have this oh. adequate um, balance of, of hunger and fullness. And so I could do, you could be doing everything else right in terms of your diet and exercise program, but if you're not sleeping well, then you know you may not be seeing the results that you want. So a lot of times people don't understand why I'm asking the questions that I ask, but ultimately it all comes together to be able to put together a plan for them. So It's a very holistic approach. It is. And I think not everybody takes that approach but you know we're we're not just physical beings we're emotional mental and spiritual and i think that all of them impact the other so it's important to really look at that from a holistic perspective to make sure that there's balance in all areas because they're all going to ultimately you know cycle into each other so if you want to really i think treat the problem you have to kind of look at all areas Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. We mm-hmm. will probably be talking about how I can affect my diet, how mm-hmm. I can change it so I can sure. see, do you have the ability to adjust my diet to garner certain results as in mm-hmm. gain muscle versus lose fat? Potentially. Sports nutrition is not one of my specialties. And I'll I remember say, you said that. Yeah, I'll I say that right that. off the bat because... I think that you know we you see different doctors of different specialties, and um, a lot of dietitians will claim they can do everything. But I think that um, in order to be able to do things really well, there's probably only a few things you'll be able to focus on. But that said, the, the at the end of the day, what research shows us is that again, no one thing is really going to work for everybody. So there's this awesome set of studies where they took twins, identical twins. They basically locked them up in a metabolic chamber, which is a fancy scientific word for prison, basically. I mean, if we're going to be honest, they were there six days out of seven. They couldn't leave. All of their exercise was monitored. Their physical activity was monitored. And their food intake was provided those six out of seven days. And they were followed for three months and under two different conditions. They were either overfed 1,000 calories a day than what their metabolic rate would be. Um, or actually under a thousand calories a day. So if you've heard the whole rule for there's 3,500 calories in a pound of fat, right? Yes. Okay. Total bogus. So yeah. So you heard it here first, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking so, news. Yeah. Um, I wish I could take credit for that, but it's it's completely false because basically what happens is it all comes down to that individual person. So somebody that has a lot of weight to lose, that's actually a little bit more accurate. And I believe if I'm remembering the number off the top of my head, it's if they have like 60 or more pounds of weight to lose. Um, that number is a little bit more accurate. But once you start to be more lean, that's not really the case anymore because your body adapts. But basically going back to the study, what they found is that people that either they were overfed or underfed a thousand calories a day and they were under real strict conditions, right? So everything else was really kind of tightly monitored. Well, their weight loss or weight gain was extremely variable between the different sets of twins, but the identical twins themselves had very similar rates of weight loss or weight gain, which indicates a genetic component. So, um, so basically, you know, and a lot of times people claim genetics for being overweight, but ultimately it's that environment perspective. There's this thing called environment gene interaction. So it's not just that if you have the gene, you automatically are going to get the disease or, you know, you're automatically, you're predisposed, but it's your environment that you're in is really going to trigger that, you know, for some people that's going to be really easy for them 
to lose weight and other people it won't. And that's the bottom line. So you can have one thing that maybe works for nine out of 10 people, but you could be the one person out of 10 that it's not going to work for. And I think what happens a lot of times is people try things and then they look at themselves as a failure if it doesn't work or they don't get the results that they want. Not necessarily recognizing that maybe it's the plan you're following that's the problem. Yeah. That's where that, you know, whole going back to a dietitian is helpful too. Well, and not so much diet wise, but when I was working out in the gym Mm -hmm. this past three months, four months when I was getting ready for Hawaii, Mm -hmm. I, for the last three years, Mm -hmm. I had been lifting either heavyweight, low reps Mm -hmm. or uh, lower weight, higher reps. Okay. Just if I was toning or if I was... Working at building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, working at building muscle. And what I realized over these past four months is I saw so much more results mm-hmm. by doing high reps, high weight. Okay. Which doesn't really make sense, mm-hmm. but I was doing pretty much full body circuits the past four months Mm -hmm. and so just not stopping and normally when I would do full body circuits I would lower the weight on each exercise so that I would have enough energy to do everything Mm -hmm. this past workout routine I didn't even bother lowering the weight Mm -hmm. and what I found was I was shredding fat Mm -hmm. while maintaining my strength and actually improving Mm -hmm my strength and beating my max lifts and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I just thought that was really interesting. Like mm-hmm. the whole one diet doesn't work for everybody. Right. W- one workout routine isn't exactly. going to work for everybody. Well, and we know that our bodies adapt as well. And that's the problem too with what happens is you can cut calories and lose weight. Um, never mind the fact that who knows what weight you're losing. Is it water, fat, or muscle? So we're going to put that you know aside for a minute. But you eventually, if you were to eat, say, 1,200 calories a day, which is a lot, what a lot of women end up cutting themselves to to try to lose weight. They're like, no, eat 1,200 calories a day. Well, if you do that for a long enough period of time, your body's just going to slow down because your body's really, really good at adapting. It is going to do whatever it can to preserve um, you know, all the necessary um, functions by basically recycling things better and, and utilizing fuel more efficiently. Um, so we have to make sure that what we do, we kind of, you know, vary things, which normally human nature works really well with that because people are normally really bad at doing the same thing every day forever. But even like, you know, exercise, we know that to be true. You got to kind of change things up. You know, you're increasing your weights or you're changing up your exercise routine to get stronger. So you can't necessarily follow the same thing forever in terms of nutrition and expect continued results. And you're not going to expect linear results either. So you're not going to lose like two pounds of weight every single week. You know, you might do really well initially, but then again, as closer and closer you get to your goal, your body recognizes it doesn't have a lot of stores left. And really like the best metaphor I can use for that is if you have a lot of money in the bank, you might spend it a little bit more freely, right? You know, you've got a, got better income and you got like a nice little bank account, right? You're going to use that a little bit. I'm going to take that vacation to Hawaii, okay? But if that starts to, di- if that starts to diminish, then what happens? Do you the, take the trip to Hawaii? No, it's, it's, it's the Friday after payday, baller service, bottle service at the bars, Baller status, mm-hmm. I meant to say. <laughs> and then towards the end of the month, right. there's no more money in the bank. Like, no, right. let's not do that. And I don't actually get bottle service in the club. And then you just pay. <laughs> <laughs> and then-
And then you just pay your bills, right? Because you want to make sure oh you at least my, have electricity. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So your body does the same thing. It's going to do all of the essential things first. Um, if there's extra, then it's going to spend time doing the extra things. So we have to we have to recognize the body is not as simple as we'd like it to be. And we always hear the, oh, calories in, calories out. It's real simple. And it's not that simple. You know, the, the metabolism itself is just insanely complicated. And then you factor in people's stress levels and their sleep and, you know, um, everything else that goes on in people's lives, the, the toxins they're exposed to, you know, everything. That, that just complicates things that much more. You know what's awesome right now? <laughs> I was kind of worried that people would be like, okay, is she talking as... Christy the person mm-hmm. or Christy the dietitian and in Jekyll and Hyde or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> in, in, in looking in your eyes and mm-hmm. looking at your face while you're talking about mm-hmm. this, it's like they're the same person. Oh, yeah, like, for like sure. you are just, this is carrying on like a normal conversation mm-hmm. for you. And I'm just amazed. That's at my that. passion. I love it. Um, I mean, nutrition is what has helped me personally. And so it's like, I want to be able to help other people in the same way. How has it helped you personally? Oh my gosh, so many things. But initially, actually how I got interested in nutrition is I was getting migraines when I was in high school and I didn't even know it at the time. I was just getting like headaches like every day and it actually happened in the afternoon, just about every day. And I ended up going and talking to my mom. She's like, well, we'll make an appointment with a neurologist and just see. And cause it was just getting to the point where it was more annoying than anything. And and so I went and talked to a neurologist and long story short, she's, you know, a traditional medical doctor. Like I said, there's a lot of really good ones. There's some that don't value nutrition at all, but um, she was one that actually explained how certain things in your environment and your stress level and certain things that you eat can actually trigger migraines. And she explained it like there's a threshold. So, you know, if you're doing all the right things and you've got your stress down and, you know, you're not watching a lot of TV and you're exercising and you're doing all these things um, and you're eating the right foods, you have a nice big margin. But it's like when you're a little stressed out and then you, you know, stop working out and then you're eating these trigger foods. And so before you know it, you have a migraine. And so basically she gave me like this three page long list of foods to avoid, mostly packaged foods, but there was still even like fruits and vegetables on the list um, that you had to avoid. And then within three days, I wasn't having headaches anymore. And I was like totally amazed that so quickly it worked without medication. So then I just started reading everything. This is my nutrition nerd moment where it's like the minute I'm like interested in something, I want to devour anything I can read about it. And so just started reading about how, about nutrition and how it impacted the brain and learning about how it helped with depression and anxiety and, and all these different things. And so I ended up just being fascinated with how it worked. And so I initially was actually pre-med. I didn't know that a dietitian was even a thing until I went to college and took a nutrition class. And that's when I kind of got interested in it. And then fast forward, actually, what, how old was I? This was about 2009. I got diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a hormone imbalance. Um, it's unfortunately becoming much more common in women Initially, the last time I read research on it, they were saying it was about 5% of the population. But I would say if I were to estimate conservatively, it's probably 30% or higher now, um, just because about every other person I talk to, either they themselves have it, every female, um, or they know somebody. It's pretty, it's becoming a lot more um, regularly diagnosed. But basically, it's just a, a hormone imbalance. And I went and saw a specialist for it and, you know, tried the conventional medicine route. And two years later, I wasn't making any progress. And so um, I started doing my own research and I, I started supplementing and taking herbs and actually went and saw an herbalist. 
and then changed my diet. And it was amazing, even just how I was feeling, but also laboratory, like hardcore quantitative results that, um, you know, I uh, was making a, a lot of good progress. So it was pretty, pretty substantial for me. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, that you have been making that progress. Mm-hmm. But what is, it's a hormone imbalance. Mm-hmm. What sort of, how does that manifest? Like what, um, what are the... Yeah, it's pretty different from person to person. There's apparently 20 different subtypes of PCOS. And the reason why it took them so long to diagnose me is because I'm not the typical case. I'm what you would call the lean PCOS. Um, so most of the time, women with PCOS are very, very overweight, obese, acne, you know, hardcore um, issues. It's usually like elevated testosterone, but there's imbalances in female hormones as well. But that typically is characterized by insulin resistance. So it's okay. kind of the precursor to diabetes. So a lot of times women aren't found to actually have it until they try to have babies and they are basically um, infertile, not infertile, but they have difficulty conceiving, I should say. So in my case, I was having other issues. I had a thyroid goiter and, um, you know, a, a lot of fatigue issues and there was depression issues. And so really when I went to this doctor, she kind of explained how they were all interconnected. And so, and, and I did have elevated insulin, but my glucose was always fine. So I kind of had this and probably because at the time I was in nutrition and I, I took pretty good care of myself, but it, um, it goes to show that you could be doing some of the right things, but you're not doing exactly what's right for you and your particular situation. And so I actually ended up having to do more of a really low glycemic, low carbohydrate type, high protein diet, which would probably be similar to Atkins and, you know, in addition to supplements and so on. Um, but that was pretty short term. I mean, I do watch what I eat now, but I'm not as particular about counting carbohydrates. If a dietitian's listening to this, they're going to totally discount anything else I <laughs> say. They're like, she was, she was on a low carb diet, but, but no, it was, uh, it was more, it was lower than what the typical American gets, but you know, high quality carbohydrates. Um, but anyways, that, that was really what worked for me. It's not, you know, again, going back to, it's not something that I would necessarily prescribe for everybody. Um, even everybody with PCOS, it really comes down to what their symptoms are and, and what their current diet is. It could be completely different. So, yeah. um, oh, there's a lot of variables. Number one, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's sure. I mean, it's, it doesn't help anybody else if, uh, you know, it doesn't, if people don't step out and talk about it, you know, so. That is a valid point. Mm-hmm. And on that note, I feel that I should share a story. All right. I want to hear it. So when I was 12 or 13 years mm-hmm. old, going through puberty, mm-hmm. keep in mind I was already an awkward kid. Um, <laughs> you awkward, Kenny. I know, right? You what? were charming from, from birth, I'm sure. <laughs> Stop your shenanigans. No. So already an awkward kid, did not have very many friends in middle school or high school, Going through puberty and they find a lump mm. in my breast. Wow. So I'm talking to the doctor. We go in and they're like, well, it can't hurt to get this tested. Mm-hmm. So go through all that. Keeping in mind, telling an already awkward right. 12 or 13 year old boy that he might have breast cancer. Aww, um <laughs> Really difficult. Right. Luckily, it was just like some fat or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So it, it ended up fine, but for like two weeks, Aww. like little awkward Kenny is sitting there just freaking out like, 
Now I'm going to have even less friends. Aww. Aww. So, <laughs> Well, Aww. I'm glad it wasn't anything serious for sure. Me too. But, but you know what? It is that an awkward stage for kids. But I And I always wish that people would explain that all of the different changes, especially from a hormone, since we're talking about hormones, hormonal aspect for teenagers, so many different things are going on from a physiological perspective that makes them totally shit crazy basically i don't know if you need to believe that out but um <laughs> definitely not you can say whatever you but, want but um i remember learning about that in psychology and being like why didn't anybody tell me that like my whole prefrontal cortex was rewiring and i'm like legitimately crazy when you're going through puberty you I'm know pretty sure i'm what pretty else? sure at 13 someone would say the words prefrontal cortex and i'd be like shut up i want to play video games and <laughs> Talk to girls. Talk to girls. How'd that work out for you? At <laughs> um, 13, not very many girls I knew played video games. Oh, no, but um, but the you know we're seeing. I'll 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 draw I'll draw this back to nutrition here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're seeing so many like deficiencies in kids, and I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing from like a behavioral aspect from kids really can be rooted in you know nutritional deficiencies and. You know, we have a really poor food system. You know, we we couple all of these issues we're, like we're pregnancy. We're pizzas of vegetable. Right. Oh, my gosh. Don't even get me started. And potatoes. Yeah, french fries uh, for school lunch program. But, you know, and then you have a woman that is nutritionally depleted giving birth to children, you know. And we know that what mom's nutrition is is literally changes the genes of her child. So now we have generations upon generations of poor nutrition and toxins in the environment and all these things. And it's like, well, no wonder our kids are born sick, which has never happened before. It's pretty alarming, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, and then we want to just give them drugs and, and hope they get better, but uh, all the while not dealing with the real issue. Well, yeah. And, and think about it. Like, I know... I have so many horror stories or I've heard so many horror stories about kids with peanut allergies, Mm -hmm. people with peanut allergies. I don't remember ever hearing about these from like my parents when they were in grade school Mm -hmm. or my grandparents when they were in school. Like nobody ever knew of a peanut allergy. You telling me that nobody knew about it or they just Mm -hmm. didn't have it or what so well people would obviously know about it i mean if a kid starts suffocating you know after eating something then obviously you know when we're talking about anaphylaxis it's like you know about it i'm really glad you brought up food allergies because this kind of goes to another passion of mine is my concern over genetically modified foods um i'm actually really glad you (laughs) you brought this up because I was doing a little bit of Facebook stalking uh, Uh, yesterday or today, and you posted something about banning the word natural, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to bring that up in relation to natural and organic and GMO and Mm non-GMO. So go. Continue. Continue talking about GMOs. Yeah. So um, GMO stands for genetically modified organism, um, which is kind of... A misnomer because when we actually breed plants, you could argue that you're genetically modifying it because you're trying to take, you know, the best varieties for whatever reason and you breed them together. I like to use, I use the word GMOs because it's what people recognize, but genetically engineered is a much better um, or more accurate term where they're basically manipulating the genes of a plant by inserting a gene usually from a completely different species. And so it's not using 
Mendel's and Darwin's selective right. no. reproduction. We're not like breeding two corn varieties together to try to make a hardier crop, which we know works. We've done that yeah. for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken genetically modifying <laughs> its chickens to be born without feathers and beaks. <laughs> Basically. That I can't speak on because I haven't done any research. But By the way, do- I, I'm... Pretty sure I read an article about that 10 or 12 years ago, so... <laughs> Not sure if it's true. <laughs> I don't know if it's 100% true. I really hope KFC doesn't sue me for this. <laughs> Disclaimer, we're not sure if it's true, Disclaimer, so. <laughs> not sure if it's true. Do your research. Google it, people. There you go, because everything you read on the internet is true. <laughs> I'm 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> so, uh, so anyways, basically, the, the best example of this is corn, because it's one of our top um, not only is it one of our top commodities, but in terms of what we subsidize for food, which is all, this is all interconnected when we're talking about GMOs. Basically, they take a gene from a pest that, uh, or a bug, I should say, um, or a bacteria, I'm sorry, that basically gets inserted into the corn and the corn starts producing a natural pesticide. So basically then what happens is that corn is producing that pesticide, a bug eats the corn, and the insect dies. And basically the actual mechanism for how it works is it ruptures the stomach of the insect and it dies. So it's Bt toxin is what the the toxin is. And it's actually something that they've used before to actually spray as a pesticide onto crops, but now they made it so a crop is actually making the, the, it's growing in the actual plant versus something you'd be able to wash off, right? Okay, so, yeah. Um, so now we're eating that toxin. And who knows in terms of not only generations, how that changes our potential genetics, how they've shown that this BT toxin actually crosses the placenta, so in pregnant women. So it actually has shown up in the blood of fetuses. So we know that there's some t- somehow we're digesting that toxin and it's in our bloodstream. Whereas, you know, basically these scientists are claiming that um, – the acidic environment in your stomach prevents the basically prevents absorption. Well, if it's in your blood, your body's absorbing it. That's the bottom line. That's how yeah. you know physiology works. So, um, so that's bogus. We know that's bogus. But basically, we don't know um, you know the dose of that over somebody's lifetime, the potential impact. Well, now think about knowing how BT toxin works. Now let's think about the influx of food allergies and celiac disease and GI problems and IBS. Well, if BT toxin works by rupturing the stomach of an intestine, what could it potentially do in humans? You know, maybe it is upsetting, you know, our GI tract and it's causing problems that are leading to these issues. Um, What the CDC has reported is that food allergies have increased over 50% in children um, between the time period of 1996 and 2011, which is conveniently um, about a year after GMOs were actually introduced into our um, society on a more broad market scale. Now, that's a correlation, not causation, because you'll hire a lot of people say, well, you can't say that that one causes the other, which is true. But it's a red flag, which means that maybe we need to actually research this a little bit more in a longer term before we just kind of stamp our approval on things. Yeah. I don't know where you fall. Mm-hmm. And so I'll probably ask that at the mm-hmm. end. No, no, no. I'll ask that now. Yeah. GMOs, are you just, there should be no GMO mm-hmm. foods or, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe in the precautionary principle, which is basically what states that if there's not consensus in the scientific community, 
which some would argue that there is, but there's plenty of scientists that will step up and say that they're not, they're concerned about GMOs, side note. But basically, if there's not consensus, then you have to do, basically the burden of proof for safety falls on the people that say it's safe. So then the, the biotech companies that are trying to push it on everybody need to prove safety before it should be just put into the environment. And I mean, I could talk about three hours just on GMOs alone because this is something that I've researched a lot myself. But the bottom line is I'm concerned um, from the potential health problems, the um, environmental impacts because we're using a lot more pesticides and herbicides than we ever did before. And we're seeing yeah. resistance come up um, in both pests and weeds. So there's that concern. Okay. Um, but there's also what I would describe as just the political corruption. Uh, well, I guess I should say the corruption of our political system and regulatory agencies. You know, scientists that end up stepping up against GMOs are personally attacked, which, you know, in science, we yeah. should be embracing all research, whether or not we think it falls in line with our preconceived notions. That's the scientific principle. So as long as it's actual science, right? Which, but then you critique the science, not the researcher, right? So you don't personally attack the researcher. Yes. You critique the science and maybe say, well, you know, we should have done this type of study. And then if you critique that research, then if you really want to prove that their, their results are wrong, you have to be the one to go yeah. do the research. So, and the reality is, is they have the millions of dollars to go do all these research studies, but they're putting the burden of proof on people who don't get their research funds oh, yeah. to do it. So that's my issue. I'm not anti-GMO. I strongly believe that, um, you know, inter innovation is important and scientific discovery is important, yeah. but there's enough concern that I have. Um, that I try to avoid GMOs at all costs. So that's a, a personal impact because I don't believe that it's been proven to be safe. Okay. I'm more of the pro-labeling. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously I'm a lawyer, not mm -hmm. a dietitian or a doctor, mm -hmm. so I don't, or a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what GMOs do and do not right. do. However, I want to know mm -hmm. if it's in my food. Sure, yeah. Basic and, fundamental right, you know. And that's, I'm not going to lie, that's a very mm -hmm. selfish mm -hmm. point of view because mm -hmm. in other situations, let's say GMO foods are cheaper mm -hmm. than non-GMO foods. Right. If I don't take a stand for more regulation, then all I'm doing is allowing people in a lower tax bracket to get screwed. Mm-hmm. And that's not a very nice thing to do. Right. Labeling is the first step towards figuring out what all this is. Right. And going back to the labeling, you know, um, or I guess something I said previously is that no one thing is going to work for everybody. And that's my, my issue that I have with people that push GMOs as being safe because it goes against everything we know about science. We know that no one medication is gonna work for everybody, no one diet, no one supplement. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always exceptions and we call them contraindications when we're in the, when the health community. So, you know, I could even say something as simple as, everybody should eat more fruits and vegetables. That sounds pretty harmless, right? Well, there are people with kidney disease that have to actually really watch some of their um, fruit and vegetable intake because of potassium and their body can't filter it out. So they're the exception to the rule. So you can't tell me that GMOs are safe for everybody because yeah. you, you, without actually testing them in all these different populations. So my, my theory is, is that um, just like everything else, GMOs for certain people that might be predisposed 
are going to be potentially harmful. Because we have a lot of anecdotal evidence for people remove it from their diet and they reverse, you know, food allergies and a lot of their GI issues that they were having. I'm not one of those people, you know, I eat pretty clean, but I know I eat GMOs, you know, when I go out, you know, go to a restaurant, for the most part, you're getting it at some point. And I don't get violently ill from them. So I'm not that person. But I do know people who swear that they, you know, they were sick in bed for years before somebody said it might be food allergies. And they eliminated these things from their diet. And then if they add them back in, they get sick again. And I see the same thing with my kids with epilepsy. You know, they eat carbs and they get seizures. Now that obviously I eat carbs and I don't get seizures, but you know, we're different people. And so we can't say one thing is going to be the same for everybody. My buddy Lenny Mm -hmm. has, if he eats carbs or Mm -hmm. gluten, he dies. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, (laughs) if I eat gluten, I don't die. Right, right. My anecdotal evidence is, uh, we were talking earlier before we started recording Mm -hmm. about my trip to Hawaii. Yeah. And I work in an office where everybody has a candy dish. <laughs> York peppermint patties and Reese's oh, peanut butter cups are just... I love York peppermint patties. <laughs> right? The bane of my existence. Okay. And like all the time, we'd eat them all the time. But so when I was getting ready for this trip to Hawaii, I just cut them out. And mm-hmm. I was, I really wanted to look good mm-hmm. uh, on this trip to Hawaii. So I cut out... All processed foods, added sugar. I still stay away from added sugar, mm-hmm. but I like stopped snacking on Reese's and New York Peppermint Patties. And today, mm-hmm. I went in to a coworker's office, and they had a Milky Way dark, Ooh, like mm-hmm. dark chocolate. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't even the fun size. It was like the square that's like right. half the fun size. Right. I ate it. And literally within 10 minutes, like, I could feel a stomach ache. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, this is not good. Right. I do not feel well right now. Right. And I think it's because I was so... I never felt that way before right. because I was so used to feeling exactly. it that I just got used to it. Yeah. And, you know, I see that all the time that people... Um, I'm convinced people don't know how sick they really are. You know, we have kids that are being born sick, right? So it's the same thing. Well, if you were born sick, you know, then you're never going to know what feeling normal is like. And, and so that's kind of, you know, again, when people come into my office and they want to lose weight and we're asking all these questions, well, how's your energy? How's your sleep? How's this? How's that? You know, the, the main issue is that um, they don't even recognize what's off balance in their body until we're asking these questions. And then they start making changes and then they see, wow, like I have so much energy. You know, they may not have lost any weight, but they're sleeping better and their energy is better and their mood is better. And so when we focus on, on those things, people end up actually being much more motivated to continue. So it's important to, again, when we're looking at the whole body, that's important to kind of know... Um, you know, take in all of that information so that we can really fix what might be the, the more fundamental issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, getting back to my uh, one of my original questions mm-hmm. about the natural about thing? natural versus mm-hmm. organic. Mm-hmm. I know that natural you can pretty much slap that on anything, and it exactly. doesn't really mean mm-hmm. a whole lot. Poison mushrooms are natural. That doesn't mean that you should eat them because you could die. Doesn't mean you shouldn't eat them. <laughs> We're not talking magic <laughs> mushrooms. We're talking business, okay? So, but uh, you know, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's good for you. Okay, that's the bottom line. And yeah. and so, what qualifies something as mm-hmm. organic? Is organic mm-hmm. non-GMO? Organic has to be non-GMO by definition. 
Um, so if somebody is really concerned about GMOs, which if they want to educate themselves, I don't know if I can really do like a little pitch, but Genetic Roulette's a great documentary and you can actually view like a free version online. There's a, and he's written a book, it's by Jeffrey Smith and, um, there's tons of, tons of good documentaries, but that's a good one to start with if people just want to kind of baseline lay person. Yeah. Genetic Roulette. In terms of... The, the natural piece, so organic has to be non-GMO, but there's also another little la- uh, logo that's on a lot of different foods, and it says non-GMO project verified, and it's got a picture of a little butterfly on it. So that doesn't, it means that it may not necessarily be organic, but there's, they verified that the product is non-GMO. So, so sometimes organic can be really cost prohibitive. Um, yes. And, and so, you know, the, the non-project verified is, is kind of a little bit better option, kind of a step down from that. Now, organic in and of itself doesn't mean that there's no pesticides used. It just means there's no synthetic pesticides. So, you know, how I was talking about BT toxin. Yes. That's actually an approved pesticide for use on organic products. Okay. Um, so because it's coming from a bacteria, so it's considered like a natural pesticide. Okay. Um, but again, pesticides you can kind of wash off. And there's this whole, um, uh, the Environmental Working Group has done a lot of actual independent laboratory tests on pesticide residues on fruits and vegetables after they've been washed. And they came up with the dirty dozen and the clean 15. Have you ever I, seen yes, these? I, yes. So, you know, they basically said that if you either just buy the 12 um, fruits and vegetables that are the dirty dozen, if you buy those organic or you actually swap out those for the clean 15, which are the cleanest fruits and vegetables, that you reduce your pesticide exposure by over 80%. So it's, I mean, okay. that's huge. Um, and when we're talking about hormone disorders and things like that, we know pesticides are linked to that also. Yeah. So that can be one of the reasons why we're seeing kind of elevations of these issues. So, so organic, I think is important, but I always try to actually go directly to the farmer. So the farmer's market's great. If you've ever noticed their produce isn't as pretty, that's kind of a good sign that it might be an actual organic, like no pesticides used at all type thing. It all looks the same after you eat it. It does, but <laughs> yeah. So, but the bottom line is if you go to like, even if you go to Sprouts and you go to the organic section, it's like, I look at it and I'm like, this all looks really pretty. But then you go to the farmer's market and you get the kale and there's a little bug, you know, bites Holes, out of it. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I know there's obviously wasn't a pesticide used in this one because it's got holes and maybe it's just not, you know, it's not, yeah. as, not as good. It also usually doesn't last as long, which is kind of a good, you know, good factor in knowing that they're not spraying other things on there to kind of keep it looking fresh. Yeah. Um, so I try to be careful in that sense. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think organic is a better option than conventional. And they actually, I think it was Europe that just did a big study. I did post it on Facebook that organic fruits and vegetables have higher antioxidant capacity and less toxins um, in them. So before there was always this debate of whether organic was actually healthier or not. And now we're starting to see some potential benefits. Now we don't know how that translates for a person when they actually consume it. But when we're looking just at the fruits and vegetables by themselves, that looks like organic is actually has more antioxidants. And it makes sense from a logical perspective because antioxidants is what protects the plant from pests because basically a pest eats it and they don't like the taste of antioxidants and they avoid it. So there's this natural component that if you're protecting the plant from being eaten, it's not going to naturally produce as many antioxidants. 
So it's kind of a, an interesting thing, but we always try to do these things to nature to try to, you know, we're trying to solve a problem. We don't always understand, you know, steps down the line, what could happen. We're trying to make our lives easier. Right. Mm -hmm. um, similar to the big fiasco about, I think it was the bees. Mm -hmm. It's like if the bees go extinct, then what else happens? Right, right. And now all of a sudden everyone's like, save the bees! Right. Uh, saw that on the internet. People also Google it because... <laughs> and I also read that in China they're having to hand pollinate plants because their bee population has declined so much. Yeah. So again, I don't know if that's true. I read it on the internet. but um, <laughs> We read a lot on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But natural. So going back to that. So people can natural or put all natural on something and it could still contain GMOs which are genetically engineered things, which... I would argue is, you know, it's not natural. You're not going to find a corn that naturally has BT toxin growing from it. You have to do yeah. that in a lab. Um, so, so just because it says all natural doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Okay. And I kind of knew that, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the exact specifics. And it's actually mm -hmm. good to know that the pesticides still can be used on organics, mm -hmm. but they just have to be non-synthetic pesticides. Right. So you may still be taking in a lot of stuff, you know, and a lot of people think if they get organic, it's no pesticides. So it's important to kind yeah. of know the difference. But again, you know, you go sort support your local farmer. First of all, you're getting fresher produce, which has got more nutrition in it. Um, but then you can ask them, how do you, what do you do to control pests? Yeah. So that's important for sure. Do you do a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture? I do. I do. I do Chow Locally, um, chowlocally.com. Me too. Do you really? I do. I the, So you know an ASU professor started it, and he was one of my nutrition professors, so I had to support them. That's awesome. Yay. For those of you who couldn't see, I just pulled out the box and showed. <laughs> just to prove. <laughs> just to prove that I do the um, CSA. But it's great. Don't you find it so easy? I do, and yeah. my recipes are more varied. Mm -hmm. um, kale yeah. is from this week's box. Yes, kale and collard greens. It was like Christmas oh. when I opened my box. <laughs> I, I actually really, okay, I think it was last week or mm -hmm. the week before where they gave me like 30 or 40 apples mm -hmm. and like 15 onions, and I was like, What do I do? When am I going to use all these onions? <laughs> right. Like, I'm not going to use these onions. Right. Um, do you know the best way to prepare collard greens? Do you like collard greens? Uh, I do when I get them in my CSA. Yeah. So my favorite thing is seriously, it's like candy to me. You get a little butter oil and, and a pan and you saute a little bit of garlic and you put the collard greens in there and squeeze a little lemon juice, salt and pepper. It is like the best thing that's hit my huh. taste buds. So simple. I do it with like just about any green, but for some reason with collard greens, it's like hundred times better. It's awesome. I'll check it out. Yeah. With eggs in the morning, it's a great breakfast. Ooh. Get your greens and eggs. Same time. Do you go to Costco? I do not. No. Okay. No. Costco has organic eggs, dirt mm -hmm. cheap, organic Oh, I get carrots. I get my eggs from the farmer's market. Yeah. How, I much, know. how much do you pay for a dozen? So, but here's the thing. Are your eggs yolks orange? Pop one open right now. Let's see. Because true free range eggs. Because here's the thing: this before is, or after I hard boil them. Yeah, no, but this is <laughs> this is before. So um, going and this ties into the whole natural label thing. So food manufacturers get really really um, tricky with things, and free range eggs can mean that they only let their chickens roam around for two hours a day. Not really free range. So I'm pretty sure like our prisoners get more time outside than than that potentially. So they're not. We wouldn't really classify them as free range, right? Not the ones on death row, but yes. <laughs> but but anyway, 
anyways, so, um, but the great way you can tell whether or not your eggs are truly free range is if their yolk is orange. So a lot of times yolks are like yellow when you crack it open. Yeah. But the other reason why I, I get them from the farmers and I usually do like organic and stuff is because I know they're, they're free range, but then I also eat them raw. Like I'll put them in smoothies and stuff. Okay, keep keep talking because I'm yeah. actually getting. You're gonna you're gonna check because <laughs> yeah. I bought one time. I I wasn't able to go to the farmers market. Went to um went to Whole Foods and spent seven dollars for a dozen eggs that said they were free range organic, and that sure enough cracked them open and it was yellow, and I was pissed. Okay, these say cage free. Cage free. They don't, free. Right. They don't say free range. That could still mean that there's like 60,000 of them. And just because the egg is brown, by the way, does not mean it's healthier. I just thought it meant it came from a brown chicken. No. <laughs> it just, it's a different type of chicken. But I had, oh. I, I taught, I teach a nutrition lab for um, certain community colleges. Mm-hmm. And I had a kid that swore that brown eggs, he thought that they were healthier. So we had to have this whole mythbuster, nutrition mythbuster moment in class that brown eggs does not mean that they're healthy. Just like brown bread is not healthy. Well, this is just because Costco has two dozen mm-hmm. organic eggs for seven bucks. Mm-hmm. And I. But you know that they always do the brown ones because it's like a trick that makes you think it's healthier for you. But the organic's healthier for me. Yeah, but if it said organic and it was white eggs, would you buy it? Or would you buy the brown eggs? If they had both of them and they were the same price, what would you buy? I'd probably go brown. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in that case, but in that case, it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> I guess that's Now, true. if the white eggs were, if the brown eggs were a dollar more, mm-hmm. we would have something for discussion. So, okay. let's crack let's this. Let's see. All right, we're opening the egg. Is that yellow or is that more it's, orange? It's more yellow. It's, more it's yellow. better than what I've seen. Okay. But I will, I, I encourage you to buy a dozen eggs from the farmer's Now, apparently I was told, and this is the other thing I was schooled on last time I was at the farmer's market, is that chickens in the summer, they molt their feathers and they don't lay as many eggs. So they don't normally have as much of a supply at the farmer's market, which was interesting to me. But you can see how you'll see a much bigger yolk and a much more deep orange color um, from from ones that you get at the farmer's market, even ones that are not necessarily organic. Okay. Well, that is good to know. (laughs) What I will say, though, Mm -hmm. is how many eggs do you eat in a week? Ooh, this is a great one. So on average, um, I love eggs. Um, Probably at least a dozen. And whole eggs, not just egg whites. I do do egg whites, too, because I think they're an easy source of protein. Number one, you just said doo-doo. <laughs> I do also do. <laughs> um, most people don't know that half of the protein in the egg actually comes from the yolk. I so d- I did know that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the reason I asked you that question is mm-hmm. because I wanted to pretty much show you that I eat more eggs than you. Oh, okay. You probably do. You're also a man, so you probably eat more than me in general. Number one, every Monday through Friday for breakfast, four hard-boiled eggs. Okay. So there's 20. Now, you know hard-boiled egg is the worst way to eat an egg, right? I thought scrambled was the worst way to eat an egg. Okay, scrambled is the worst way. Hard-boiled is the, like, second to last. How should I be eating my eggs? (sighs) I know. So in a smoothie, but this goes back to making sure you're getting good quality eggs because it's the potential salmonella contamination, which really, in even in conventional eggs, is only one out of 30,000 eggs is going to have salmonella. It's usually on the outside of the egg, by the way, not on the inside. 
if you go organic with a farm that practices actual like free range chickens where they're not tromping around in their own excrement, basically, that goes down significantly. Segwaying back to the fact that you said doo doo. Yes, doo doo. Now you're talking exactly. about excrement. Now I'm literally talking about doo-doo. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, yeah, so I eat my eggs raw because. Now you do have to be careful with eating a lot of raw egg whites because it can, it basically, there's an enzyme that binds to um, prevent biotin absorption. So you could eventually get a biotin deficiency, which is a type of B vitamin, but there's a lot of biotin in um, the egg yolk. So if you're eating the whole egg, that actually And um, I do eat the whole egg, just it's hard boiled. Yeah. But I thought if you eat the egg without breaking the yolk, it's better for you. It's just, it, it. It's whether or not it gets cooked completely because then when you're cooking it, you're like denaturing a lot of the proteins and you're kind of ruining some of the nutritional value. So if it's raw, it's better. Or if you like poach it is like if you want to do cooked eggs, then poaching it would be the next best option. So you still have that runny yolk. I know, but it's a lot more work. That's why I just do like the raw eggs in a smoothie because you don't normally taste it. Four eggs a day. Mm -hmm. I think I could do... I can obviously do hard-boiled. Right. I might be able to do in a smoothie. Yeah, so you could do two in a smoothie and then like two hard-boiled. Two hard-boiled. Yeah. I don't know if I could poach four eggs a day. It's kind of a lot. I've, I honestly have not mastered the whole poaching of the egg situation. Yeah. I've tried a couple times and it's been a royal disaster. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I opt for rocks. It's just easier. But. Okay. So kind of need to wrap up. Right. And the reason for this is I have a phone call at 7. I know, but aren't we having so much fun, Kenny? <laughs> I don't. Honestly, I could probably talk to you for another few hours. Yeah. About, we, we can do uh, part two. Uh, we're going to do part two. Let's but we, we haven't even gotten a chance to break into more stereotypical nerd aspect. The yeah. fact that you... <laughs> Was raised by engineers. Raised by engineers. <laughs> they took you to our an arcade when you were a kid, oh, and yeah. you've mastered Time Crisis. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about <laughs> that we just don't have time for. It's time. And that upsets me, and I'm hurt. <laughs> right here in your heart? Right here in my okay. heart. You Next time. You don't even know. <laughs> no, I am know. a big time nerd. It's kind of, um, but it's genetic. I but, can't help it. Good. So, I am going to ask you one last question. Yes. And it's, what are you nerding out on right now? Oh, my gosh. Now, when you say, what does nerd mean to you? Because it does mean different things to different people. It is a self-defined term. Okay. Uh, one of the guys I was we recorded with was nerding out on a few books. Mm-hmm. One girl was nerding out on... Some diet stuff. Okay. Uh, I can't remember. Those interviews happened so long ago. Well, I think probably my newest thing that I've been most interested in is aromatherapy. I actually went to like a little aromatherapy class, um, which was fascinating. And so I'm using a lot more of my own essential oils. I make almost all my own like skincare stuff um, just because there's, again, going back to the whole toxins and crap in the environment. Um, I'm sure we could talk for another hour. Exactly. Yeah, right? So... But um, but anyways, yeah, so I have a couple books on aromatherapy, and, and one of them is medical aromatherapy, where it kind of explains from a chemical perspective how it works. So that's probably my latest nerdiness. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah. And I always try to answer as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> right at this very moment, I'm nerding 
the heck out of fantasy football. Um, I just had... I'm the commissioner of my league, and I just had <laughs> three proposals passed that these the guys are going to listen to this, and they're going to be like, that mother ecker. Um, I <laughs> and told, I'm sitting here like, what are you talking no. about? <laughs> I, I, I negotiated some amendments to our constitution, oh, but I totally God. Frank Underwooded it. Okay. If you're familiar with House of Cards. I am familiar with uh, House of Cards. Both. Before I sent out mm-hmm. the proposals, I texted people who I knew would be in my corner. And I was like, hey, I'm sending these out. Do you support them? Do you not support them? And as soon as I knew I had the requisite number of votes, I sent it out. Oh, my God. It was so ridiculous. Totally Hashtag dumb. Hashtag epic. Hashtag epic. <laughs> right. uh, no. And then, um, yes. So that is what I am currently nerding out on. But, awesome. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for coming and awesome. hanging out and drinking wine with me. Absolutely. Anytime. Part two and three, maybe. Who knows? It's I could ha- go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So great. we are going to do this again. I Perfect. promise. Sounds All good. Right? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. As always, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Send me an email at ken at dumbbellsanddragons.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at dumbbellsanddragons. Connect with us on Twitter at dumbbellsdragon. Also, our theme song, Roll a D6 by Assorted Intricacies, can be found on iTunes, or you can listen to it on YouTube now.